So Exodus 17, 1 through 7 reads like this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 4, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Who will you believe? Who will you believe? That's the question that the people of Israel had to confront in their own minds as they found themselves in the wilderness with no water. They had to answer the question, Who will you believe? And it's not as easy as it might seem Sitting here reading this story, we might say, well, why couldn't you just believe God would provide water out of a rock? That seems relatively simple. And the question is, what gets in the way of belief? Who will you believe? I don't know if you've ever had hypothermia. I haven't. But apparently, one of the end symptoms of hypothermia, especially towards the end when really you've lost hope of surviving it, is your body does some weird things. Uh, First of all, your brain gets a little muddled and you aren't thinking clearly. And secondly, your body, in trying to conserve heat, will make you feel extraordinarily warm. Many cases, somewhere around between 70 and 80% of the cases of people who die of hypothermia, they find them naked and their clothes scattered. As they're walking, their body becomes, in their mind, hot. They're getting hot, so they start taking their clothes off to cool off, not knowing they're freezing to death because their body is trying to help them survive and they go against it by pulling their clothes off. So the question is, when you're hot and you're freezing to death, what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the reality of the situation in the woods, freezing to death, keep your clothes on? Or are you going to believe your senses that tell you you're hot and you need to cool off? So who will you believe? The question the Israelites had to answer here was, who will you believe? Will you believe God or will you believe your thirst They're thirsty. That's what it says in Exodus chapter 17. They got to Rephidim, and they were camping, and there was no water, and it says that they thirsted. That's not unusual. If you've gone without water, you get thirsty. This is not surprising. What's surprising is when this is happening. God has already supplied water for them miraculously once. The chapter just before Exodus 17, God has provided them all the food that they can eat For their entire journey in the wilderness, no questions asked, no gratuity required. 
And now they run out of water, and immediately they become concerned that they are going to die of thirst. They have food, but they have no water, and their camp has no water, and they've got children, and they've got livestock, and nobody wants to die of thirst. It sounds terrible. Look at verse 3 of Exodus 17. The people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? We'll tell you why. To kill us and our livestock, and our children. Because we're thirsty, obviously, Moses, the motives for you bringing us out into the desert was to watch all of us die of thirst. The one, Egypt had a lot of things we didn't like about it, but they had all the water we could drink. As far as we're concerned, that's the one thing we need in this moment. Why did you take us out of slavery and bring us out into the wilderness Moses, we have no water, we are going to die. So they've got two pieces of information they're working with. One piece of information, they can look over there in the wilderness, just over that way, and they see a giant pillar of cloud during the day and a giant pillar of fire at night, and what is that? That's God. So they can believe God, who is right there, or they can believe, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. One of these things is going to dominate their understanding of what is true. And in this moment, what are they listening to? Their tongue sticking to the roof of their mouth a bit, feeling a little parched. They need to wet their whistle. Who will we believe? Will you believe your thirst? This thirst, their belief, their trust in their senses, their belief was, my thirst never lies to me. Every time I'm thirsty... I need a drink. That seems logical, doesn't it? Every time I'm thirsty, I need a drink. And how they demonstrated their absolute, total, reliant faith, their absolute, total dependence on their senses is in the fact that they quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. Moses, you have access to God. Great. Religion's not going to help us right now. What we need is agua. Now, I don't know if Spanish was spoken 1,500 years before Christ, but that's what they said. I don't know that I'm, I'm being silly. We need water. God is great when you're not thirsty, but when you're thirsty, God will do you no good. You can't drink God. That pillar of cloud is great. It would be even greater if it would rain. And what they're believing is full dependency on my senses tell me what is true. Belief in their thirst is revealed by their quarreling. What we can say is this, our conflict, our quarrels, our uh, discontentment reveals what we trust. What, What we can say is this, when we don't have what we know we need, we become quarrelsome. So when we lose our God, we become discontented and quarrelsome. And for the people of Israel in this moment, who was their God? Tall glass of cold water. Tall glass of warm water. Tall glass of somewhat dirty water they would have taken. But their God is when removed, they be discontented. Because they haven't lost the actual God, he's standing right over there. But we know who their God is because when their God, water, was removed, they became discontented, they became quarrelsome. This is affirmed over in the New Testament in James chapter 4, uh, verses 
1 and 2, this question is asked by James to the church. What causes quarrels and fights among you? What's the answer? What causes quarrels and fights among you? The answer is this. When other people don't understand how right I am. You are fine to have your opinion as long as you realize it's wrong. What causes fights and quarrels among you? We are hoping as we prepare to read this verse, it will affirm that all those other morons don't have it right. Look what it says. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. Why do we quarrel? Because we don't get what we want. We start doing this when we're two. We learn as adults to be polite about it, but we're still doing it. When somebody takes our toy, we get mad. And you say, well, nobody has ever, I'm a grown-up, harumph. Have you ever had somebody hit your car? Did you say, oh, no big one, it's all good, I got insurance? Some of you did that. Some of you said to your spouse, that's what you did. <laughs> Somebody on the sidewalk was live streaming it on Facebook, and that, what they captured on video wasn't precisely that. Most of it had to be beeped out, otherwise the video wouldn't be allowed to be uploaded. You took my toy. Don't you understand how hard I worked to buy this car? Not only that, but I got the extra options. And I don't care if I take it to the body shop. They'll never get the color right. It's ruined for life. My life is over. I should die now. All that is, somebody took my toy. They didn't have a right to. Because, of course, if we don't have the car we want, we will, in fact, die. How am I going to get to work? They say, well, that's a silly example. We could say this about anything. Who takes my time? I come home from work. I expect to be able to walk in and sit down in the chair and everybody be polite and kind while I get a little rest and de decompress, right? How does that work out for... It doesn't. Would your kids quiet down? Arr! Of course, none of us would ever do that, right? Let's sit down and read the Bible. No, that doesn't happen, right? What's the problem? I want peace and quiet in this moment, and you have taken it from me. You've taken my toy, and I'm going to pitch it a little baby fit. Why do we fight and quarrel? As soon as we're quarreling, our brain will tell us it's that guy's fault, and the Bible tells us, look at my heart. They have taken something I think I must have, and we will always define those desires as needs who do we believe when we believe our thirst we define what we need by our own senses a need for safety a need for security a need for significance a need for hope in the future a need for meaningful relationship a need for a certain amount of money a need for a certain amount of respect a need to be able to do the things we want to do when we want to do them all these things are defined in our own minds as needs and when we don't get them we raise a clenched fist to heaven and say my god where are you i didn't get to take the vacation i wanted because i 
hunger and I thirst. And God, when you have not provided that which my heart desires, clearly I'm going to die. Why have you brought me out into this wilderness? Why did you even save me? Belief in our thirst is revealed by quarreling. Quarreling here is not primarily the, the issue. Because we say, well, the fix is stop quarreling. And that's not the fix. The fix is to allow my heart's desires to be defined by the scripture. Okay, so belief in thirst is revealed by quarreling. Next thing on believing in our thirst is this, if you like taking notes. Belief in thirst is revealed by blaming. We blame others when we don't get the things we want. We see that in James chapter 4. We also see it in Exodus chapter 7. What did the people of Israel want to do to Moses? They wanted to send him to a conference where he could learn proper water retention tools so that they could have enough water. No, they wanted to kill him. I don't have what I want, and what I want is by definition a need. How is it defined as a need? Because I want it. You have made it so that I can't have what I want, so therefore I wish you were dead. As one author puts it, oftentimes we don't murder the people we love, but we'll treat them as though they are dead. We will resent them. We will not talk to them. We won't relate with them because they have wronged me by taking from me my heart's desire, and so therefore... They are no longer of the same value to me as I once was, as they once were. Belief in our thirst, when we believe what we desire over and against God who provides us our desire, we assign motives to others which are not true, and we would prefer them to be either out of our lives or dead or finally get it together and figure out what I want is most important. And this is what is happening to the people of Israel, and this is what happens to us. Finally, belief in our thirst does this. Belief in our thirst, that is our desires, overcomes past experiences of God's faithfulness in our lives. So the people of Israel lived in Egypt for 400 years. God rescued them how? Ten plagues. Decimates the most powerful nation on planet Earth at the time. Takes them out to the wilderness to cross the Red Sea. He just simply parts the Red Sea so they can walk through it. Then he provides water for them miraculously. Then he provides them an unending supply of food miraculously. But God, what have you done for me lately? Because I'm thirsty today. I don't really care that I walked through the Red Sea a few months ago. That's not going to do me any good if I die in the desert today. My desires for what I want and the, uh, the passions of my own heart will wipe away all memories of God's past faithfulness. If we were to sit quietly, you might be able to think through a number of times where you're like, man, God came through, didn't he? God provided what was needed. God changed my heart when it was needed. God provided the right word of encouragement. Uh, God provided miraculously in a powerful way. But today I'm thirsty. That stuff is in the past. God, where are you? Why have you brought me to this moment in my life? Obviously, it's God to kill me. Who will you believe? Will you believe God or will you believe thirst? I've got some good news for you. Are you ready? You say, good, please, because this is going downhill fast. Nobody ever died of thirst. Think about it. Anybody ever died of thirst? What do you die of? Dehydration. If you died of thirst, you'd die every day. 
You get thirsty every day. What happens when you get thirsty? You walk over to the town, turn the water, Medford water, some of the best water in the world, right? I mean, we are lucky in our water department. Nobody dies of thirst. We die if we don't get water. But how is our brain wired? If I am thirsty, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. There's nothing coming out of the tap. I'm going to die. Lord, where are you? Strike the faucet with a staff or something. I don't know. That, see, we don't die of thirst, but that's the way we're wired. If I don't get what I want, what's the point of living? So the Israelites are thirsty for a day or two. Is that going to kill them? Absolutely not. Are they going to be uncomfortable and in a place they don't want to be? Yes. That's not a problem. God is going to be putting them in uncomfortable and difficult situations for the next 40 years. Thirst doesn't kill us, but we're convinced if we're thirsty, God has abandoned us. When we don't get what we want, we assume God has punched out, he's on break, he's gonzo. But thirst doesn't kill us. Not getting what we want doesn't kill us. What happens in our hearts and our minds is our wants become our needs and they become inseparable. As long as we don't have what we want, we don't have what we need, and therefore God isn't present. And so what happens is everything we want is actually becomes a need. And you say, no, 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 that's not how I roll. I know all I need is food, housing, and clothing. I'm good. Okay, back to the car accident example. Right? Car goes away. As one author has put it, you know exactly what your needs are is when you don't have them when you get upset. We have to admit our wants and our needs are commingling, and when we don't have them, we think God is absent. And the question is, who will we believe? The desires of our heart, which lead to quarreling, or will we believe God is faithful even when we're thirsty? Who will you believe? God, or will you believe your thirst? Okay, needs, of course, aren't the only challenge they're faith facing, uh, but also they're facing significant fear. Look at verses 4, 5, and the first half of, of verse 6. Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're about ready to stone me. He wasn't playing. People were getting ready to kill him because that'll make them less thirsty, I guess. I don't know. Nothing like some good physical exertion to make thirst go easier. The Lord said to Moses, don't worry about it, I got this. Pass before the people of Israel, take some of the elders, go hit a rock. Who will you believe? Will you believe God or will you believe your fear? Will you believe God or will you believe your fear? Now, if you have a kindergartner, you might have had them at one point go to a fire station on a field trip, and it's a fantastic program. The kids love to... Uh, go on the field trip. They also ask for parents to go with the kids. And as uh, we do, we say, oh yeah, I'll go because I want to help with the kids. You're like, oh, we get to go to the fire department. Hope, you, hope I get to hold the hose. Turns out dads, they, they don't even let the kids do it. I asked. <laughs> One of the things they do is they get them all in there and they bring in fireman Joe and he comes in. Hi kids. And he's got his little blue Midford fire department shirt on, his normal pants. And then he puts on his gear one piece at a time, and they tell them what each piece of gear is, till finally he's fully dressed with the apparatus and the breathing thing, and he's breathing it, and it's making all the noise, like Darth Vader, right? And then what he does, he gets down on the floor, and he crawls around among the kindergartners. Why do they do that? Because they want to make sure that in a, a dangerous situation that the, child, the children are not afraid of the firefighter. 
because in all that gear, he looks kind of scary. And they don't want a kid to be hiding under a bed when the firefighter is looking at him. They want him to see, when you see this guy, go to that guy. You don't have to be afraid of him. And then after he's done crawling around among the kids, he gets up and he takes off the gear like, oh, it's just fire, fire guy Jim, Jim or John or whoever. So they want them to not be afraid. And so the people here come into this situation uh, with Moses, and God doesn't want them to be afraid. He is just simply giving them what is needed to help them trust him more. But what they're doing is they're seeing their fear and deciding their fear is able to tell them accurately what's happening. So the kid hiding under the bed in the burning house is afraid of the fireman in all his gear, and the kid says, I know what's true. My fear tells me what's true. But we know, obviously, that's not true. And then we grow up as adults, and we say, well, but now I know my fear always is accurate. I've always responded in a very level-headed way when I get afraid, right? Haven't we? Sarcasm alert right here. I need the light so you know what's going. No, we're not. In fact, fear usually guarantees we're not thinking reasonably. And so the people here get afraid, and now they're going to respond in accordance with their fear, and instead of expressing worship to God who always provides, they express murderous rage to Moses. The people are getting ready to kill Moses. They're going to stone him to death. They're afraid. Moses is afraid. And everybody's angry with everyone else. Fear says this. I should be in total control of everything that I think I should be in control of. When I'm not in total control of everything that I think I should be in control of, I get afraid. I get fearful. I even want to control all of those things that only God can control. And when God doesn't follow my script, I'm mad at God and afraid that things are going to go poorly. Fear leads to anger because it reminds me, lo and behold, I'm not God. And I find that terribly frustrating. I'm sure you don't. When you have to go to God and depend on him for things that you wish you could just handle. Fear says I should be able to control everything. And when I can't, it's frustrating because it reminds me that I'm not God. Now, not everybody who was getting stoned and rocks thrown at them. Not the other kind. Not everybody responded in fear, so let's look at another guy, Acts chapter 7. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, had just given a great sermon to the folks of Israel who had crucified Christ, essentially saying, you killed the Messiah just like all of your ancestors would have done. They didn't respond uh, by coming forward or giving in the offering. When they heard these things from Stephen, this is Acts chapter 7, verse 54. I'll get up to the 59 in a minute. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They probably did it more angry than that. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Is he afraid? No, he sees two people. He sees people gnashing their teeth, and he sees the glory of God. God, you, you're small. You're lame. So if I can see God, I can see you, oh, I'm good then. Okay, so there's there's nothing to be worried about here. Now, how is this different than the Israelites in in the wilderness? Where was God? 
giant pillar, remember, remember that? Giant pillar of cloud, fire at night, Red Sea, all kinds of stuff. They see God, no water, God, no water. God, uh, obviously you're weak and useless. So Stephen here sees God in all his glory, and he has no fear of the people who are very angry at him. And he said this, in fact, out loud. Behold, I see the heavens opened, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Not a great thing to say. I mean, it was great for him to say it, but not a safe thing to say. They cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. I see some of you doing this on Sundays. Uh, No, I'm kidding. I've never done that. They rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, just like Israel wanted to do to Moses. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59, it's up on the screen. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does this guy sound fearful? Does this guy sound angry? The Holy Spirit had allowed him in this moment to rest in the power of God and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now what's interesting, we don't have time for this right now, you take this verse and compare it to some of the final words and moments of Christ, they're nearly identical. And the reason for that is Jesus, I should say Stephen, was really Jesus-y. The Holy Spirit was moving in him, and at the end of his time, he was acting, not super spiritual Sunday school king, he was acting like his Savior acted because his heart had been changed. So when he faced the most fearful of circumstances, he didn't believe his fear, he believed the glory of his risen Savior. And he could face those fears, and he could say, well, God, would you be gracious to these stone throwers? Especially that one guy, he's thrown like four times and completely whiffed all of them. No, that's terrible. He didn't do that. Would you forget, who would pray for people who are in the act of murdering him? Only someone who saw things for the way they really are. You're going to kill my body? Congratulations, I guess. I'm living forever. What a stupid thing to do. What a waste of your time. I'm about to get a body that's off the chain awesome. And you're going to beat up on this little thing? Whatever. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense if Jesus really raised from the dead. And if Stephen really believes in a risen Savior, which he did. Who will you believe? The risen Savior or whatever it is today that has your knees knocking together? It's a simple choice. You say, well, that is not a, it's a simple choice. It's not an easy choice. But the question is, we will always have faith. The question is, what will we trust? The risen Savior or whatever it is today we are convinced is going to kill us. Or if it won't kill us, it will at least make our life not worth living. Fear always asks this question. What should I do? Whereas Uh, resting in God always asks this question, what is God about to do? Fear says, what should I do? I got to fix this. Belief in God and faith says, what is God about to do? Look at Exodus 17, verse 6. What is God about to do? Behold, I will 
stand. I will stand. This compares back again, and we don't have time to go, or actually it compares forward up, I think, yeah. In the next chapter, they're going to conquer or fight against the Amalekites. And during that fight, Moses has to pray for them while they're fighting, otherwise Joshua starts to lose. What happens to Moses? He gets too tired. He's got to sit down. And Aaron and her have to hold his arms up. And so Moses doesn't even have the strength to stand up for his people, but what does it say God is going to do and it will never stop doing? Behold, I will stand. Our Savior is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us no matter what happens. He will stand with those who have put faith in him and remind the Father over and over again, I paid for it. They're in. They're with us because of my grace. Fear says, what should I do? Faith says, what is God going to do? The fear of the Lord is wisdom. All other fears in our life lead us to worship ourselves or to worship those things that we fear or think will deliver us from it. If I'm afraid of being broke, what will I worship? Not being broke. If I'm afraid my health is going to fail, what am I going to worship? Doctors, you can fix me. Now go to the doctor. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to worship good health. If I fear a marriage that I'm discontented with, there's strife and difficulty, what am I going to worship? Now, I see that couple over there. They're hunky. They're always happy. Drives me nuts, right? Fear of the Lord brings wisdom. All other fears derive from our passions, and all other fears reveal that we worship ourselves or our idols. What do we believe? Do we believe God, or will we believe our fears? Who will you believe? First, do you believe your thirst? Second, will you believe your fear? And finally, let's end with this. Will you believe the living water? Look at the second half of verse 6 through uh, verse 7 of Exodus 17. You will strike the rock, and water are going to come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So Moses strikes a rock, and it turns into a water fountain. It's incredible. It doesn't make any sense. Rocks don't generally have water in them. You can't squeeze blood from a rock, right? Strikes a rock, water comes out. Well, he must have struck it really, really hard, and it revealed a hidden spot. Oh, give me a break. Water came out the rock. If you don't like miracles, you're not going to like the Bible. It's just like full of them. So if you need to explain it, like somehow him standing on it made the ground shift in the spring, you know what, it's just full of Let me put it this way. At, at the, sort of the, the culmination of the story, a guy rises from the dead. So if you're going to struggle with water coming out of a rock miraculously, the whole point of the book is going to be bothersome for you. It's just full of miracles. How does water come from a rock? How is this possible? Because God is with them. The whole point of the thirst and the whole point of God being with them was to show them, you don't have to worry about it. I make water come out rocks. Literally, water can come out of anything that God wants it to come out of because he's made water and all the other stuff. Who will you believe? Will you believe the living water? Will you believe in and rest in God who can bring water from a rock. 
there was a movie that came out. It starred a guy named Harrison Ford. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an actor. Um, he was in a couple of films. I can't remember them. Um, Apocalypse Now. Like, you remember that one? Yeah, what was he, like 18? Yeah, I've never seen it, if that offends you. Um, I've seen it. I, I can't lie to you. Um, there's another movie, and actually in an interview, he said it was his favorite movie that he made. And it was a movie called Mosquito Coast. Who's heard of it? Like two people in here will have heard of Mosquito Coast. I don't know. I, it's been so long since I've seen it, maybe filled with offensive material. So if it is, I've never heard of it. Um, <laughs> but one of the storylines is while he's in the Mosquito Coast, he's gone to this place to live out in the jungle, he creates a refrigerator, an ice maker that is powered by flame. Now, these are common refrigeration techniques. If you have an RV, you might have a refrigerator that you light, right? If you have one of these, you light it with, a, with the propane. It's got a little flame on it. It's called an absorption-style refrigerator. They're not huge nowadays, except in RVs, really. But really, you know, these kinds of refrigerators were the first big refrigerators on the market. Uh, Albert, Alfred Einstein, among others, were those who created it. It has no moving parts. The, the heat provides the mechanism for the fluid to move around and creates cold. I don't know how it works. You could ask the refrigeration guys. They're saying it's so simple. Okay, sure. But anyway, that, the, he's a mosquito coast. He creates this refrigerator that you light to make it cold, and of course, everybody says what? You're full of it. That's not possible. It's so well, of course it is. Physics makes it possible. And so we come the same way with God. We don't understand how he can make water come out of a rock it may be because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. It may be we have to admit we don't know everything about everything we think we know. The question is, are we going to believe the living water or are we going to continue to believe our fear and are we going to continue to believe our thirst? Or will we rest in God who will bring water from a rock? Turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 46. Or actually, it might be up on the screen if you don't want to turn there. John 5, 46. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says this, John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Jesus says this, if you believe Moses, you'll believe me. He wrote about me. What's he inferring here? How did, were the people doing on the believing Moses bit? They wanted to stone him to death. And so Jesus is saying to us, if they would have believed Moses, they would have believed me. If you will believe me, you're going to believe Moses. Can God bring water from a rock? Well, we have to believe something a little bit bigger than water coming out of a rock. We have to believe a Savior came out of a tomb. If Jesus is dead, what are we doing up early on a Sunday morning? Jesus continues this train of thought over in John chapter 6. Jesus was talking about manna in the wilderness, and he says this, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. Okay, who was it? It was my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. Jesus is saying, Moses didn't give you manna, my Father gives the bread, and guess what? Manna was lame. You don't need manna, you need awesome bread. Because you need true bread. He's basically saying, you want manna? 
because he had just fed the 5,000 and they were hungry again. You just want bread? You just want to eat so you, you won't be hungry for another three hours? Two and a half hours? The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and who gives life to the world. Who is the manna? It's Jesus. And we, we look at the Israelites and we say, those morons. If I was there, I would have just got up every day, packed up my little manna lunchbox, put it in my, my house, and, and gone and watch TV. I got nothing to worry about. Then we wake up this morning and we're just filled with anxiety, fear, frustration, and anger. And Jesus is saying, I am the true manna. We have nothing to fear. Look at verse 35. It's not up on the screen, but this is what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He was just talking about Moses in the wilderness. Do you think he's thinking about a rock? Of course he is. He knows the story because he was there. And he is saying... Before we point our fingers at the people in the wilderness who were going to stone Moses to death, we need to evaluate, am I full of fear? Am I full of uh, passions where I need my desires met? Am I full of thirst where I must have what I think I must have? Or do I believe Jesus when he says, you know, it's really I'm all you need. If you never get another meal, if you never get a drink of water again, and you die of hunger, more likely die of thirst, and you have Jesus, guess what? You're good. I can tell, I can see the expressions on your face. Well, that sounds terrible. Of course that would be terrible. Thankfully, for us, he hasn't put us in that situation, so we're not worried about food, and we're not worried about thirst. We're mad that somebody unplugged the, unplugged the DVR, and the show I wanted to watch didn't get recorded. How can I navigate through the wilderness if I don't get to watch that show? I'm never going to know how it's going to end now because they never do replays. How will I be able to navigate through this wilderness if my loved one doesn't get better? How will I be able to navigate through this wilderness without my job? That's not possible. God must have abandoned me. How will I be able to navigate through this wilderness? I have done everything right as a parent, and apparently my kids don't appreciate it. Obviously, since God hasn't shown up in my predetermined ways in which he ought to show up, I am going to die in the wilderness. And Jesus said, do you have me? I am the bread of life. Do you have me? I am the living water. Are you good with that? Or do you need me and something else? Because Jesus doesn't share. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Good buddy. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Everyone in Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and into the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? Jesus. And he was not enough. They were discontented with the lot they had been given. They were discontented that they had to trust in God every single day again. They were frustrated that God wouldn't remove all the fear so that they wouldn't need him. Jesus was saying, I have supplied you everything you need for every moment of every day, and I have given you myself as your sustenance. 
when you become frustrated and fearful, it's not because you have enough, it's because you want something different than me, is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying it not to Israel 1,500 years before Christ. Who is he saying it to? He's saying it to you and me. When we pitch our toddler fit because we didn't get the toy we wanted, it's not merely because we want stuff. It's because in some way, at some level, we've said the risen Savior is not, it's just not quite enough. I mean, that's good for the religion part of my life, but I got other needs. It was okay for somebody, John chapter 4. There's a woman there who heard this and said, I'm good with that. Samaritan woman, not Jewish. Sinful woman, like all of us, but she had had a number of sexual partners, and the current person she was currently with was not her husband. Jesus comes to her and says, as long as you get your act cleaned up and you get some, some good habits and spiritual disciplines, I might save you. That's not what he said. I'm seeing if you're paying attention. That's not what he said. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's gesturing at a well. She knows she, he's not talking about that well. She knows she has gone to every single thing this world has to offer to try and satiate her thirst, and every single thing she has drank was like drinking ocean water because it made her more thirsty. And Jesus said, listen, you tried it all. You've literally tried everything. So I'll tell you what, give up on that well. It's a lame well. How about you drink from the living water? Everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again. Verse 14 of John for whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will not even not merely fill him, but will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Who will you believe? Will you believe the living water? Jesus is not playing. He's merely saying, I am enough. Do you believe me? Do you believe? believe me. I am, he's literally saying, I am everything you need for life. If you don't believe what he's saying, believe what Stephen said as rocks were coming at his head. I'm good. God forgive him because I don't need safety because I have the living water. Some of us are saying this. We'll tell you what. If, you, if there was a miracle in my life like the Israelites got to see, like a giant rock in the middle of the desert, all of a sudden gushing out water, if there was a, a miracle I could see, well, then I would believe. Then I would buy it. That's okay, I could see it. I mean, rocks don't have water. Water's coming out of a rock, so therefore Jesus must be risen from dead head. Not going to happen. Jesus merely said it this way in the verse we referred to earlier. If we don't believe Moses, we won't believe Jesus. If we don't believe what was written, we won't believe a miracle. If a rock popped up in the stage and gushed out water, you wouldn't buy it. If we won't believe Moses, we won't believe Jesus, and if we won't believe them, we won't believe a miracle no matter what happens. The question is, can we trust that Jesus rose from the dead, and if we can, then we're good. We can set aside our fears, we can set aside our thirsts, and say Jesus is in fact enough. All right, a couple of things, and then we'll close. Thirst, fear, or living water. Faith isn't inevitable. You're going to believe in one of them, either your thirst, your desires, your passions, or your fear, the things that make you scared, 
or you believe in the living water, the question is, which one will you believe? Last verse, uh, three verses I'm going to read are in Philippians chapter 4, 11, 12, and 13. Here's what Paul says about it. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That last verse I read is a memory verse. You often, read, you often might recite in your own mind, you're going to go face a very difficult situation, and you say, okay, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and that's a good verse. You should, you should say that and be encouraged by that. The primary application of it is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When he dumps his blessing of wealth and bounty on me, Lord, give me strength not to abandon you. And when he takes it all away, and I'm left with nothing, and, not, and less than nothing, I can still, in the strength of Christ, say, no, Christ, you're still enough. In both situations, plenty and want, I can find my contentment in Christ alone. And Paul says, that is so difficult. The only way I can do it is if Christ strengthens me. The only way I can be content in wealth and content in poverty is if Jesus gives me the power to do it. Israel couldn't do it, did they? Train wreck in the wilderness, it got worse when they got wealthy in the promised land. And so Paul says, Jesus, give me strength to desire you and you alone, whether I'm well off or I'm broke on broke. The fix isn't more of what we want. The fix is more of Jesus. When we think about our fear, the fix is not safety and security. When we look at the life of Stephen... The fix for Stephen was not safety and security. What was the fix for Stephen? The glory of the risen Christ. When he looked to Christ, he saw everything he had in store. You can take this tired old body. I have everything I need. The fix for fear is not safety and security. It's the glory of the risen Christ. When we think about our failures in our lives, we can think of it this way. My failures actually fit into Christ's plan. When I blow it, when I mess it up, when I am fearful or when I rely on my own strength and I blow it, my failure even fits into Christ's plan because Christ's glory is my glory and I can trust even in him during the times of my failure. Final question to you and I just want you to wrestle with this whether you're a believer or you don't consider yourself a believer. It's a very simple question. Do you trust Jesus? Will you believe that Jesus came for you and he's enough? I know what you're thinking. You could have asked that at the beginning and we could have been done early. This is a tough question. Because as we work through it and we look at our fears and we look at our passions and we look at the desires we have and we really are confronted with the fact that those desires are a replacement for Christ, we say, well, yeah, Jesus is enough, but I also kind of want this other stuff. And we have to come to God in repentance. That we, uh, there's no playing around with this. We have to come to God and say, God, I know you're supposed to be enough. But we, I got to be honest. You're enough as long as I got everything else lined out. As soon as everything else isn't lined out, well, you and I got problems, bro. And Jesus' response is, I don't got a problem, bro. 
in repentance we can come to God. Jesus, I don't know what to do, but I need you and everything else. I need you to do whatever you need to do to bring me to the point where I say, Jesus, I just need you. And he will hear and respond to that prayer. Some of us don't know the Lord, and you're here today, and the question is, do you believe Jesus will forgive you? Most of us don't want to trust the Lord because we think there's no way he'd accept a dirty, rotten sinner like me. Well, I know some of the folks here. He will. I know my own heart. If he'll take me, he'll take you. Will you believe in Jesus that he came for you? Or will you continue to try to test all the dry wells that this world has to offer? Well, that's your prerogative. When you discover those are all dry wells, come on back. We'll talk about Jesus some more.